1: Welcome to the Tennis.com podcast. I'm your host, Nina Pantic. My co-host, Irina Falcone, missed this episode while competing at the Australian Open. Pretty good excuse. Our guest today is Joel Drucker. He's entering his fifth decade as a writer in the tennis industry, and he wrote the cover story for the January issue of Tennis Magazine about Roger We're talking with Joel about Roger Federer, of course, as well as a couple other big players down at the Australian Open. We talk about Joel's career and how he got into it, as well as some of his stories and methods and tidbits that we can learn from someone who's been in this sport for so long. Before we get into that, as much as this is a tennis podcast and we're previewing the Australian Open, there are far bigger issues going on down under The bushfires have affected millions of animals and people in a country that Tennis takes over for all of January and has created hazardous air quality in Melbourne as well as all around the country. It remains to be seen how the air quality is going to impact the Grand Slam once main draw gets underway, but there's been some rain, which is great news And efforts to help raise funds have been phenomenal. The Grand Slams have jumped on board, donating $400,000. The tours and players have put in so much effort, donating money for aces and double faults and everything in between, as well as directly giving their prize money and also taking part in these exhibitions, like the Rally for Relief, which took place on Wednesday. So with that being said and our thoughts and our donations going to Australia for the Bushfire Relief, Let's jump into our episode previewing the Australian Open with Joel Drucker. All right, Joe, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us.
2: Sure, it's great to be here with you, Nina.
1: Super excited to have you on to talk about the 2020 Australian Open. It feels like it's really crept up on us. You're actually flying out, and we're recording this episode before the draw is out. So that's something to take note of. And we want to cover, you know, the man, Roger Federer. You did a cover story on him for Tennis Magazine. And that's kind of why we've brought you on. But also, Joel, I mean, it's great to talk with you and catch up. We've worked together. And um, tell us a little bit about you. You know, how did you get into tennis? You're a writer, and you've worked in the booth with Tennis Channel, and you've done a lot of a lot of tennis coverage. So tell us a little bit about you.
2: Well, I just got into tennis. You know, I played a lot when I was a kid. I played juniors in Southern California, and I wasn't a significantly accomplished player, but I really loved the game and watching it and and thinking about it. And then just before I got out of college, well, I thought I was going to go to Washington, D.C., I had a chance to write for a local tennis magazine. It was kind of like, wow, oh my, this is what I was meant to write about. And then it took a little while to do that. I had 10 years having another job. And then by the time I was in my 30s, I started to freelance and just started to write more and more about tennis. I mean, tennis is really, it's this lens for how I see a lot of the world, whether it's is life like tennis or is tennis like life. And maybe that's... Uh, You know, that's the way I kind of see a lot of things. So I just had a great many chances to write for magazines and stumble my way into TV and uh, work a lot with Tennis Channel and uh, the Hall of Fame and lots of places. Very, very fun.
1: And I want to ask you a little bit about how you pitch a story idea, because your Roger Federer piece, it's called Swiss Watch, What Will a Busy and Likely Pivotal 2020 Bring Federer? And it was a cover story for the January-February issue of Tennis Magazine. So, you know, what kind of goes into getting a cover story and uh, putting it together?
2: Well, the, the concept in this case, I think, this is a case where uh, the editor, you and I worked with, Ed McGrogan, he wanted a story on Federer. And then, so then the question becomes, here's a guy who's been written about six ways to Sunday. I mean, you and I know, you and I we've read our share of all sorts of Roger Federer stories, from David Foster Wallace to Associated Press to The New York Times all these places so for me i try to think of what really interests me about roger fetter what i what do i find engaging and curious and distinctive about him and in this piece you know we're looking at roger at this crossroads and roger where he's at and i always like to kind of figure out what the real question is you know everyone likes to ask can he win a slam another slam always can he win more slams that to me is a fairly binary yes, no question, outcome question. So I want to look at the process question. What needs to happen for him to win slams? And you keep asking yourself questions like that. Then that almost creates the homework assignment of like, okay, what needs to happen? And if this needs to happen, and then I start to talk to people. And um, one of the more fun parts of journalism is what I call the hunting and gathering phase, where you interview people. And for this story, I interviewed a great many people from our colleague, Martina Navratilova and Paul Anacone, Jimmy Arias and Matt Spilander. And these folks bring their own insights into Roger based on their experiences, players, their um, look of the game of analysts. You know, and again, everybody has studied Roger Federer so closely I mean, he's like the Beatles of tennis. So that's part of the part of the mix.
1: I mean, you mentioned the hunting and gathering. To me, as a reporter, my least favorite is having to hunt down sources. Like, I really hate kind of harassing people and asking them for their time. And the second I get to sit in a room with them or get on the phone with them, it's just like a relief. And that's like the most enjoyable part of the job is when I'm actually doing the interviewing. Uh, For you, it sounds like you kind of enjoy all of it. I want to know how you figured out or how you found out about the uh, Ken Rosewall um, letter. So apparently, at the Australian Open, Federer gets the envelope, and it's a letter from the legend himself. I mean, how do you find this out, and, and what's what's the deal? With that?
2: I do a lot of I do a lot of um, chatting with people that might not seem to have a purpose when I'm doing it. In other words, I learned that from Rosewell. I've gotten to know a great many of the Australian legends through my stories I've done and through this tennis fantasy camp I attend, and so I. Chatted with Rosal about this a couple of years ago, and he told me about it, and so I just learned that from him, and I kind of keep that in my head. I think I think one of the key things in hunting and gathering is to do it all the time in kind of random ways, and then eventually something like that might work its way into a story. It's a little harder to always do it just for a story, you know. It's like I'm not going to. So it's good to just have like I have this like a you know cognitive database in my head of these things I've hunted and gathered over the years of anecdotes, of stories, of vignettes and, and I think I, I think I look at it as just, you know, chatting with people and, and gathering things, it's it's very random and it's not scientific. You know, it's not like I have this file in my office as this federal related anecdote. It struck me as very interesting that a, a longevity Titan like Ken Rosewall would do this with Roger Federer. So he told it to me and that was pretty neat. And then I had to ask him, I said, why did you see him? When you want to talk to I me, mean, Roger Federer would gladly meet with Ken Rosewall. So I just keep my eyes on that kind of stuff.
1: That's actually genius. I mean, you you kind of have these little things you can pull out of your hat when you need to. I mean, it makes in my head, I'm imagining you writing all this down.
2: I think it's just kind of like spanning the globe and kind of my own interest in the tennis. It's like I, years ago, noticed the better Rosewall connection stylistically, how he played, because I've studied Rosewall pretty closely. And I remember seeing him play a little bit when I was growing up. and and I wanted to bring that to light. I mean, we talk a lot about the federal labor affinity, which is the labor cup and the great champions, and they've been on the podium together. But Ken Roswell is someone who I think is a little less known than some of the other greats. And so that connection, I just found it kind of, a, kind of delicious, kind of fantastic, and the way there are a lot of similarities in how they play.
1: It's kind of a new take, which is nice, because as you said, covering Roger Federer has been done every which way possible, so it's it's amazing to pull out something new. And you mentioned the word cup, and for me, that's kind of a trigger word. Uh, the ATP Cup just wrapped, and Roger Federer notably did not play, and now he's going into the Australian Open without having played a match since the ATP Finals in London, which was a loss to Stefanos Tsitsipas in the semifinals. You know, what, what do you think about this play? I think, um, in my opinion, I think, for him, playing the least is is probably the smartest move. But what do you think?
2: I would agree with you, Nina. I think in a way, you know, Ryan Federer it's like a it's like a car you just kind of drive around the block on a Sunday to just keep it well tuned. I mean, what is he not going to have his his timing, his movement? I mean, obviously the thing for him is to stay fresh and match tough. I mean, I think I think he made a strategic decision not to play the ATP Cup and have this travel, and then also now with some of the weather and in Australia, that makes it even more prudent for him not to have played and, and all of that. So maybe he's just, you know, he's Roger Federer. I mean, he's, how many times does he come to tournaments and the, his timing is just so exquisite. He doesn't need, he might not need that many matches. And I think that's his approach, Whereas I think a player like Nadal, Nadal always feels that he needs to make sure he's getting in reps and matches and practice and work to to be in the thick of things. Don't you think that?
1: Oh, I totally agree. I mean, totally different, totally different cars that are driving here because Rafa needs to be training and sweating and working out every single day. It feels like, and uh, Roger is a little bit different. It's tough though because I mean, it, it's it's so fun to compare the two of them. They're so different, and you know, Rafa played the ATP Cup, and I mean, when you look back on this tournament, this team event, it was like ten grueling days. I mean, this was relentless. He played so many matches, and he suffered so much, which he does. You know Rafa does every time he plays, but and then we have Novak Djokovic who was flawless six to zero, and then he pulls out of the next tournament because I mean again ten grueling days. You know what do what do well, you? Well, we about knew it?
2: Novak was yeah. probably going to do that. You knew wow. you probably sensed Novak was going to be pragmatic, and no one is worse for the wear, and you can't fault him. I mean, he put his heart and soul into that ATP Cup and played some great tennis right to the end. He earned that win against Nadal to to tie the to, to tie it up and send in the doubles and. uh, and now he's ready. You know, he has his he has his pre tournament Gustav.
1: Hi, everyone. You're listening to the Tennis.com podcast with special guest writer Joel Drucker. Joel is telling us about his experiences interviewing the likes of Roger Federer. Keep listening. With Novak's commitment to the ATP Cup, he really kind of lifted that event. But at the same time, I don't know, I'm kind of torn. I was in Doha for the ATP 250, and it was so nice to be at an event that was just a regular tournament, and players were so excited for 2020, and I had, I mean, I had a really nice Great time covering that tournament, and just thinking about all the players that they lost because Novak would would have played Doha, but instead he's out in ATP Cup trying to promote this new event. And I don't know. I mean, you mentioned Labor Cup as well, and all these team events. I think it's just it's exciting, but also kind of chaotic. Like I really struggled. Maybe it's just me to keep up with the ATP Cup. I don't know. Did did you? I
2: agree, absolutely. Between the time zones and the cities and the early time of the year, and and who's what? I think I, I'm wondering if sometimes the tennis calendar is we got the Grand Slam event, and that's a significant amount of the narrative, these four jumbo events that we pay attention to. And then the rest of the year are these kind of bursting sensations that capture us maybe with a great match, a moment, an emotional thing. For example, this year, that'll be the Olympics in Tokyo. They'll be like, whoa, the Olympics every four years. Boom, this is exciting. And and there might be a, a neat match that happens in Indian Wells or some something like in in Beijing, when this year, what, last year, Osaka played, um Andrisu, you know, like a just these, these bursts, but not necessarily this whole 12-month flow of the year. You see what I mean? Like a series of fireworks. Oh, yeah, yeah. That burst at the end. These team events. It's funny. So Laver, So Federer's team wins the Labor Cup, and Federer is kind of a, the principal of the Labor Cup. Isn't Nadal very close to the New Davis Cup founder, That the New Davis Cup sponsor?
1: Yep, yep. The, and he the, won. The, yeah, yeah
2: and they won the Davis Cup and then Novak kind of championed the ATP Cup and his team won.
1: It's so fitting how it's all worked out the past uh, the past few months in the team events. I mean, that's it's incredible and it's it's interesting, but I mean, I feel I, I think it's just cuz I was just in Doha, but I feel this bias towards the smaller tournaments. I mean, you can find such amazing matches and stories at small events and the Grand Slams and now the team events are like taking over, but you know, it is it is what it is. It's a tournament every week, so that's good news.
2: No, these team events, yeah, it is a little hard to keep track of them hard to keep track of which one is which and then there's the Davis Cup is a little hard
1: to follow too oh my god it was so hard for me as well I don't know I I mean I feel like maybe I'm not even that big of a traditionalist but I was struggling with Davis Cup I was struggling with ATP Cup maybe it's the time difference maybe it's I only care about you know semis and finals I I don't know but I struggled with both
2: I do too I do too I think I guess I guess as journalists we're gonna have to kind of like you know re-up our brain and game to just keep up with that all
1: I know. I need to, I need to adapt quickly. So, um, I mm-hmm. want to ask you about, 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 let, let's switch back to Federer. You know, I can't stop talking about Roger Federer. Um, what, how many times would you say you've interviewed him and, and do you ever get him one on one? What's the, uh, what's your like really kind of, I guess, working relationship with him?
2: I've been in dozens of press conferences with him and he, I've interviewed him one on one like two or three times. He, I think he, the way I think he'd probably recognize me by, uh, by face, but not necessarily by name, I think so um working in television for many years in television production, other people were doing the interviews, and I was helping often prepare whoever's doing the interview to do the interview with him when we would have him on various tennis channel shows, so not to the extent you know, I don't know him to the extent, like example, I knew um Sampras and Agassiz, who I interviewed many times and more and one on one quite a few times, but I, I will say this Roger Fetter. When you do an interview with him, and I don't know if you've had this experience, he's right there, and he's going to think of something interesting to say, and he's not and he's not forcing it. He's very engaged, always thoughtful, always a little more than you thought. And there's this whole interest level with him that he's really taking in the question. Fascinating.
1: Oh yeah, I, I mean, I've interviewed him twice in a one-on-one type situation, and like aside from the anxiety I was feeling, like he's so calm and cool and collected, and he answers the questions genuinely and with thought and he's not ever he never really seems like irritated or rushed at least not in my experiences you know so i, I agree what you're saying yeah and then oh, uh,
2: i'll tell you i'll tell you a funny story about federer and me doing an interview this is a funny story i was supposed to do a, a, a 20 30 minute one-on-one with him at indian well one year wow. and i think it was like a wednesday after a match he played and the atp said to me that it said well roger wants to do the interview with after his match tomorrow and I was a little. I thought, okay, it's Roger Feder, but what if he loses? And sometimes when players um lose, this is happening with other players, they lose and they go. And there oh, goes yeah. the interview. They're
1: long gone. Absolutely. They have no interest.
2: So it's Wednesday afternoon and I've agreed that I'm gonna do this after Thursday's match. So Wednesday afternoon Feder walks into his press conference and he's just before he's about to sit down and do the press conference. And you know, Nina, you've been in these press conferences, there's always a, a little moment or two of non-chat chat before the press conference starts. Right. So I look right at Federer and I go, so tomorrow we're going to talk win or lose, right? And he looks at me back and he goes, yes, win or lose. So he he knew he was committing to it. And of course, fortunately, he won.
1: Wow. <laughs> so, I mean, that's balls but that was kind you. of you.
2: Well, that's a little bit the price of experience and saying, look, I've been around this block. I don't want to be, I mean, I had, I had one happen with a pro once. I'd spent weeks at like three tournaments hunting it down and number three was supposed to be the charm. And then he lost and then he blew out of town. Like, wow, what do I got to do here? Finally, I got the guy on the phone, um, a month later, but geez, Louise, you know?
1: It can be so tough, especially because it seems so easy. You're at a tournament, you put in a request, it's assumed that, that they're probably going to say yes, worst case scenario, it'll be a press conference, but things happen, and the losses definitely, once they lose, it feels like any one-on-ones are just shocked. There's no chance. But, I mean, I love that story. That's that's nice. Yeah. So you're packing but, for the Australian Open. Uh, this is, you said it was your 12th time?
2: This will be my 12th time to wow. Australia. Wow, made that's, really
1: that's some air miles. Are you? I mean, surely you're business class by now. That's air miles.
2: No, no, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm economy plus.
1: <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. Okay, well, always it's plus. So what what are you most looking forward to? I'm looking ahead now. I mean, you're a few days from being down there. Obviously, the biggest news has been uh, the bushfires and the weather and the, the air quality.
2: You know what's really exciting to me is seeing a lot of these women play. I think there are a lot of interesting storylines. a little bad luck that Andresco pulled out of the tournament, but Ash Barty, and Serena and um, Madison Keys, and uh, I, I think there are a lot of different playing styles going on with a woman. I mean, we saw a bunch starting to surface at the U.S. Open, and that really interests me. I like seeing these different playing styles, these different ways, um, different tactics going on. I think that that is just me. I mean, look, the big three are at the men's side are, are unbelievable, and let's see if someone else can really get in the mix. Like whether it's Tsitsipas or Medvedev or someone like that, but I'm I'm excited to see a lot of these women play.
1: I'm digging my bias into this again. I think you should watch out for Andre Rublev. He had an amazing week at the Qatar Open, and he was just so flawless. In my I think and he could
2: be the next you know, David Ferrer. Yeah. Don't you think he oh, could be yeah. the next David Ferrer? He's got, but
1: he's He's got, but he's, he's got, but he's got this, this, these slap shots, you know, he can really hit it. So, and then, and then he has a bit more height than David. That's going to help him a bit, but the mentality he's working on being more mentally tough, which I thought was adorable. And, uh, you know, if he gets his act together, I think he'll be right up there. But, you know, that was one. How about Rublev
2: playing Alex Dimonara in a match somewhere? How would you like to see that one?
1: I mean, that would be. But it feels like Dimonara is going to be a bit more, uh, under a lot more pressure. You know, the Australians playing in Australia, it's just going to be so tough for them. I mean, Ash Barty, we mentioned, she started up her 2020 losing to Jennifer Brady in Brisbane. She's playing another tournament this week, so, you know, she's going to get a rhythm. But, you know, I I think that's going to be interesting for her. World number one in Australia. I mean, well,
2: Jennifer Brady, you know those those Bruins are always toughing, as you know, as one yourself. Oh, yeah. oh, yeah. you know, Jennifer Brady had a nice little a nice a nice little round of sixteen run there a few years ago, and and some of those players, you know, Jennifer Brady, um, Daniel Collins, you know, they can they can hit the ball pretty well and have their moments, but yeah, I think you're right. I think I think Ash Barty will be more under that spotlight even than Demon Art, don't you think? She's number one and. And all that stuff.
0: Oh
1: yeah. And I mean, honestly, like I think she's such a genuine person as well. She's someone that I've met a few times and someone who you when you want to see succeed, you know, you want it for them so badly. So the fact that she won the French Open is kind of like, Okay, you know what? We've we've she's proven herself. She's made it number one, it's great, but she's so young. So you kind of expect so much more from her moving forward versus maybe like a holip who who won a little bit later in life and I mean she just won two slams, she's doing fine, but the expectations feel different with Ash Barty.
2: Yeah. How it's become, they it happened so late after so much frustration, kind of the Sisyphus journey of how that now it's like, it's, it's gravy time and this is all nice and good. Whereas Barty is kind of at the beginning of it all. And now she's got one where, well, could she, could she win three or five or seven? And, and what's, what's quite going to happen with her. So it's intriguing, but what a, what a playing style. I mean, for, I mean, again, you get back to, I'm talking Federer, we're talking Ken Rosal, we're talking about volleys and, you know, one-handed and two-handed backhands, and it's very pleasing to watch Ash Barty play.
1: Oh, it is. It's it's different. And you mentioned Bianca Andreescu, she's not playing, but another another person that's so unique. Um, but we also have mm-hmm. Naomi Osaka, defending champion. I mean, I, I think I think what I've noticed with her the past few months, she had that 14-match win streak. Uh, lost to Karolina Pliskova in the semifinals of Brisbane. Had a match point, ran out of gas a little bit. No big deal. But with her, I think her mentality and her attitude has really changed. You know, she's kind of enjoying herself. She seems happy, and you know, even on court, you can kind of see it a little bit more. I don't know what your take is of her chance. I would
2: agree. I think so. You're right. I think she kind of went through that kind of whole wow life at the top, and Wimbledon was tough for her, and and the U.S. Open, and not quite. You know, maybe a little better, but just Maybe by the fall, she started to feel she could relax or maybe she had some uh, talk with herself and her family and just kind of like, okay, let's enjoy this. Let's enjoy this. And I think you're and it's going to be she's going to be quite a force. I mean, she's such a good player. Played so well there last year. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com.
1: Hey, everyone. You're listening to the Tennis.com podcast with special guest Joel Drucker. He's previewing the 2020 Australian Open. Keep listening as someone that's behind the scenes and at these tournaments so much watching these players day in and day out and you see them get go through a funk and get frustrated like she did last year and mid last year are you thinking in your head like come on like relax dude you're number, you know you've been number 1 you've won a grand slam your life is great you're a pro rich tennis player you know what are you thinking when you see these dips
2: you know i do think that sometimes but then i realize and this helps look i wasn't a vastly accomplished player but i played a lot of tennis i played a lot of tennis matches and tournaments and you guys like, well yeah but you know it's a hard game. You don't have teammates. So you got you're going to go through these ebbs and flows where it's going to feel hard to compete and hard to win. I mean, it's a really relentlessly demanding sport. You know, Nina, you play at a very high level and you know you're going week in and week out and you're having you having the life of the travel, the play the life of the travel and the hotels and the food and the sleeping and then oh, and then you got to compete. And you got someone else across the net. They're all really good. You know there aren't any, There aren't many freebies in these early rounds, so you gotta bring it, and and it's and you don't have teammates. So I kind of, I kind of can get that, but at the same time, there's part of like, hey, what a great life, enjoy it. But but it's hard. It's hard. winning tennis matches. You know, competing is easy. That's why I would tell Nick here, competing is easy, but winning is hard. Winning is hard.
1: Oh, I'm so glad you mentioned Nick. I mean, well, on your on your thoughts there. When I think to myself. You're living the dream. You're a pro tennis player. Like I don't know why you're upset about anything. You remember that when they get on court, it really is all about being alone and playing this game that you've been working so hard at. And then when things don't go your way, you're by yourself and you're you're upset and you're frustrated. And it's it's still the same as if you're like 12 years old and trying to win a junior tournament. It kind of always goes back to those basic core feelings and those feelings are sometimes so miserable and terrible and you feel like it's the end of the world even if you're a multi-millionaire or even roger who's gonna be a billionaire soon you know it's all about perspective but nick this we have to talk about him australian open hp cup i mean this guy was killing it and i think it's because he's on that risk of being suspended right he has to behave himself he has no choice right. but to behave himself but at the same time he loves team events so it's kind of a perfect storm but now, Australian but, Open, I mean, I just want him to do well because it's just another person that's so fun to watch, but you just never know.
2: He is must-watch. He is must watch tennis. I mean, he's one of these players, you know, these ones come along. I mean, Marit Safin had that eerie nostalgia. You watch this guy do things with the ball, you think, wow, that is just amazing. And then you see other things it's like, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? What What's going on with this? You're hitting in between your legs in the middle of a rally for no reason. Why are you quit trying to be cool? Just, just play tennis. But but he's definitely engaging, and I, I hope he's he health, stays healthy and, and plays some some good tennis. He's definitely fun to watch. And, uh, yeah, it's interesting how he likes the team events a little bit more, a little less pressure, a little more people looking out for him, cheering him on, all that.
1: I mean, him and Alex Demenor had this bromance going, and there couldn't be, in my opinion, I mean, I don't know both of them very, very well, but they couldn't appear to be more different. I mean, Demenor is grinding and fighting and putting in every ounce of his body into every single day it feels like and then Kyrios, as you said sometimes comes off as a little bit too cool to put in the work and to try too hard sometimes you know he'll ruin his he'll sabotage himself Deminor is never going to do that and the fact that no, they were and, bonding and crazy. Knows that. oh yeah I mean they were like best friends it looked like and they were working together and I'm like this is what this team event is for it's going to help someone like a Nick Kyrios get his own head out of his butt
2: well, it's like the mm-hmm. smart kid in the jock in school. You know, yeah. it's like the, the, the jock is showing up late for class and, and the smart kid said okay, come on, we're going to get through. Because Demonar knows kind of what's good for Australia. It's like, you know, there's Australians, they never lose sight of the Davis Cup or the, or the, or the, or the ATP, whatever, it's, if it's a team event, Australians are always on board for it. So the whole concept of mateship and how you look, you know, I, I mentioned to you, I know these Australians, Way back in the day, in the '60s and so, when the Aussies were traveling the world, if you asked another Australian how to beat an Aussie, he wouldn't tell you. I
1: mean, things. So things Alex, have is out for uh, yeah. well, Alex is it, looking after Nick. Ah, yeah. Alex is
2: looking
1: after. It feels like it, yeah. But things have definitely changed. I feel like everyone's so competitive and everyone's out just for themselves these days. But you know, the, you know, and I, it's interesting. Actually, you mentioned that because you've been in the game for so long, you've seen this change. You know, you've seen the players change. You've seen the people at the top change, you've seen the way journalism has changed, you know? And like, are, are you still excited day in and day out to be covering the sports so intensely?
2: Absolutely, I love it. I still keep all my credentials and I get excited when I get my credential and think, wow, I'm getting, yeah, they're paying me this time. And I, I really love being around the game because the game, it's funny. I went through a period and I wrote a book about Jimmy Connors. I spent 20 years, he was like my guy and I like I was elementally connected to what he meant to me in the game. And now, in the last 15 years or so, it's more about the game overall to all the players. I don't have a player who I live and die with like some fans do, and I think that's great that they do. I just think the game itself and the ribbons and the texture and the mosaic of all these great players, you know, the the connection to Federer to Rosal to a guy like Alex to to Hewitt or Kyrgios to Nastasi, I think that's what I'm able to see when I'm taking in the game while we're watching these matches, because you know... and. And, you know, you've done this too, and you spend hours and hours watching tennis matches and bringing interest and insight into them, not just what happens during the match, but what it means overall. So I think it's it's great. And the game, it mentions how it changes, but I'll tell you another funny thing. I have spoke to people as far back as Fred Perry from the 1930s, and every generation of players will always has always told me, well, we played before it became about money. We were we got on, we were friends with each other. We used strategy, you know. For us, we played for the right reasons. Every generation thinks that they're like the, the tennis greatest generation. That's funny.
1: I love that though. I mean, you do feel nostalgic for different different eras and different decades. You know, you mentioned Pete Sampras and Andre Agassi, and of course, players before them. But I don't know. I, I kind of feel like it's better to think that your era and your decade is the best. And, you know, the fact that the game has changed and money, I mean, money is insane now. Of course, players in the past might be a little bit envious of the cash flow we have coming in for Roger and Novak. But I don't know. I mean, I kind of like the mix there. And the fact that you're connecting the old and the new is is interesting. And hence why you... Well, to me, uh, it's all a circle. Oh, yeah. To
2: me, it's all a circle of time. It's not a line of time. It's a circle of time. And it's kind of like it's it's the connection of all of it. And I think the, the other sports... Romance themselves in a way that does that a lot too. I mean, you got Jerry West as the NBA logo, and and all, all that connection to it all, and that's what makes people enjoy and relish a lot of their sports. And tennis, yeah, tennis, the the, the chains keep moving down the field, and the players beca- are great, and the money keeps growing, and and they're really good. I mean, the skill, the the skills of these guys. I mean, these these big three. We're going to be spending a lot of time thinking about what is it that's made these guys play so well for so long. It's just incredible.
1: It is. It's 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 kind of an honor to be part of this era. But, you know, it's you mentioned that you had a connection to Jimmy Connors, and that's who you were kind of following and enraptured by. But, like, I don't have that kind of feeling. I haven't had that feeling at all in tennis. Uh, there's no favorite player for me. I don't mean people ask, oh, who's your favorite? I literally can't even think was of Was there ever? Name. I think when I was, was younger, ever? I was obsessed with Monica Salas because she was from, from Yugoslavia, and then she had the 200 forehand, which I actually had till I was about 15 so I had that uh-huh. like, interest, but I didn't get into tennis because of a certain player. And then when I started writing about it, I wasn't like, oh, you know what, this player makes so much sense to me. And, and when I cover matches, of course, I have my, my favorites because of how they play and knowing that it's not going to be boring and it's important always. But, you know, it's, I think it's a little different.
2: Well, everybody has their way of how they connect and click into the game. And look, and you also play the other, it's funny, I, Monica tell us, Speaking of Jimmy Connors, I think they're very similar. I mean, Monica Selwitz is, uh, that's one of those players you'd have to play for the Fate of the Planet. I mean, she's a fantastic player.
1: Oh, yeah. Player. I mean, yeah that's and one of my dream podcast guests. No offense to you, Joel.
2: They, I'm not offended. I, I, I would definitely, if she showed up right now, I'd walk off. I'd walk right off. You could have her. <laughs> fantastic. And, uh, yeah, she's just great. But, I look, everybody engages with the game in different ways. You know, the game, the styles, the personalities. lots of, And it changes. It changes. It's great
1: on our ending note let's uh let me ask you how far do you think roger's gonna go
2: as far as he's meant to go okay. i mean if you read my st-
1: <laughs> okay that's safe that's safe i just wanted to make sure you know in case anyone's wondering what your take is and, you know we're gonna keep it safe all right
2: cool. my, my take is about the process i don't know I'm, I'm, I'm gonna let someone go to las vegas and do that one
1: you're right you know what i know you're not a betting man okay cool well thank you joel and this has been the Com podcast with joel drucker that was fun From the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, this has been the Tennis.com Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to stay caught up. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and every major listening app, as well as Tennis.com slash podcast. You can also see the videos of our episodes on Tennis Channel's YouTube page and Tennis.com's Facebook page. We're your hosts, Nina Pantic and Irina Falcone. I'd like to thank our team, editor and audio designer and video editor, Christina Koseva, producers Alexa March and Sean O'Malley, and executive producers Shelby Coleman, Kyle Einhorn, and Andy Chiu.